The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. Our guest today is Dr. Timothy Dodsworth, Senior Lecturer in Law and Director of Education at Newcastle Law School. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. In about 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? This is the first question that we usually ask all of our guests. That's quite a tall order, isn't it? Because we're, <laughs> we're looking at such a big concept. I'd say uh, maybe I'll describe some of the aspects that are important to me from vulnerability theory. So I think the, the first would be that it's constant, universal, complex in particular. And I think that be, that will become more important probably as we work through. The second is that we're reasoning from the body. And that, that to me is such an important aspect because we get rid of a lot of the preconceptions we see along the way. And I'd also add in there the, that it embraces dependency as, as something that's inherent in the human condition, mm-hmm. which again is quite important because we're usually assuming that, that people can be entirely independent. Um, and I think the final point will probably be on, on resilience assets. Um, the fact that we, we, we collect and want and have and don't have certain resilient, resilience assets and the, the, the quality and amount of those dictate how we can engage with our surroundings. Actually, I said that was the last one. I'll add another one in there. And mm-hmm. that is the fact that this doesn't apply just to individuals, but can apply to systems or institutions as well. Yeah. And those, those, I think, are the key factors of vulnerability theory that, that to me, are so, so important. Okay, thank you for that. What are resilience assets? So resilience assets are the assets that we collect, um, that we also strive for, um, that we can have more or less of. And I would say that then, I said earlier on, I think the quality and the amount of those will dictate how well we can engage with the systems around us. And that that also means then how those institutions around us dictate, um, well, in a way, the power that that they have in distributing those assets as well. So I think there's that dual role there, which is really interesting about resilience assets. Um, And also the the fact that we don't always, they're not always visible. Mm -hmm. These resilience assets can also be invisible, uh, which I think if we start thinking in systems terms, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, So we have not had an episode of Voices and Vulnerability for, I think, over six months at this point. So we'll, I'll be asking you to define a lot of terms that we've we've talked about in previous episodes but this is a little bit of a refresher so thank you for for doing that here can you tell me a bit about universal vulnerability and what what the concept of vulnerability really means as a term of art within vulnerability theory and then how resilience assets are related to that 
one of the difficulties, I think, and of course I'm, I'm coming here from the private law background, from really contract law and contract law theory, so I think that's quite important for the way I, I look at vulnerability theory. And the key part of universal vulnerability is the fact that we can't, and here comes a double negative, we can't be invulnerable. Uh, vulnerability is something that, that will always be there. Um, that is the universality of it. Um, and in that sense, it's always constant in that there's always a possibility of harm to us. So I think that is probably a key aspect of the uh, universal vulnerability. If we begin to categorise, which of course contract law does a lot, if we look at consumers or um, if we move out of the contract law area, an asylum seeker, for example, we're, we're beginning to categorise. And that means then that we're obscuring that idea of universality. So those, I think, are the aspects of universal vulnerability that's so, so important to vulnerability theory, and also then to understand the institutions, and by institutions I'm taking a broad category there, um, that surround us. The relationship then to resilience assets within that is that the resilience assets that are then distributed by the systems, by the institutions, they don't remove vulnerability as such, um, or, or simply don't, but they allow us to adapt, to, to, to compensate for, um, to adjust in light of that universal vulnerability and our dependency, of course, uh, within that. So your most of your work is in contract law. That's right. How does vulnerability? How does a vulnerability analysis change the way that you look at contract law? I know that's a huge question. To me, and and, and an absolutely <laughs> valid question. It, to, to me, I, vulnerability theory has explained so much of what is wrong with the way that we've been looking at contract and contract law. The idea that we are individual and autonomous and can so enter into contracts and therefore contract law can be removed from everything else in order to focus purely on risk simply doesn't work and we see that by having all sorts of different systems within contract law that then try to deal with categories, um, I'll use the example of, of consumers, but again with certain instances. So say, insurance contracts and so on and so forth. And that there lies the difficulty that even when we're within those categories, it doesn't work. And we can see that, and this is more my area again, in things like essential services. We stumble across these difficulties and then we find another category. And then in that category, you'll find another category, and yet the system is still not working. It's not functioning. It's not trying to solve it. So that would be, I think, the first thing of how I stumbled into that or stumbled into the idea of vulnerability uh, theory is that quite often we get to that point of saying, well, an individual is vulnerable and therefore we need a new intervention. And as I started to then interrogate what lobbyists or different, different people within these categories were trying to argue... Um, I noticed that actually the definition of vulnerability was different each and every time. 
And that is when I started to set out to see whether there was possibly something more in the idea of universe, or in the idea of vulnerability. And that's when I came across Martha's work, which so clearly to me provides a path for us to analyze contract law again. And I think this probably comes from, if we take a step before that, when I started looking at underlying values um, in relation to contract law. Because I was looking for the reason of why contract law is coming up with certain things. Um, why are we coming up with these concepts? Why are we coming up with these ideals? Why are they different in different jurisdictions? Yeah. And that's where the key came down to values. And so I started trying to interrogate what these values are. And one of the things you notice is that how we interpret vulnerability will depend on the values that we have. But almost always we're coming back to this idea of the, the free autonomous individual that we know doesn't exist. Right. And that is where vulnerability theory comes in, because mm -hmm. there there's acknowledgement and there we're not reasoning anymore from, from a, a rational human being. We're reasoning from the body. And so we're removing the shackles of, of that to actually really identify what the problem is. What would contract law working look like to you? What would like a working set of policy look like? I think you might have to answer me, ask me that question in 50 years when my life work is done. Um, I think if we, if we jump into that, because that's really interesting. One of the things I think we start from is we have to accept that it's not working. Right. So, and it's not, going to, it's not going to work by staying the same. Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily need to know what the end product is uh, to know that it has to change. Yeah. That would be, the, I think, the first, first answer is, and basically me saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I know what that yeah. end product would look like. But a vastly improved contract law system is accepting that vulnerability isn't what we currently believe or what the system currently understands to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, and consumer law is that perfect example, which is saying, really, if we, if we, accept this rational human being, then all it can really be is either time, so the consumer's not had enough time to consider something, or they've, they've not had the clarity of what it means. And so, particularly on, on the EU law basis, most of the policies that have been brought in have been based on just that, mm -hmm. which is this rational human being, if they had simply understood then, then that would be fine. And what we're seeing is the consumer is not. When we then accept the consumer is actually inherently vulnerable, then we start to see cracks in the system, and that's where we can plug in. So a fundamentally changed understanding of what vulnerability means, that would certainly help, I think, yeah. in that direction. Mm -hmm. And the second part of that is I, I simply don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's something we're still working towards. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I, I, yeah. I think... A, I foresee that a lot of my career is probably, probably going to be built on trying to trying to identify what that is. But vulnerability yeah. will certainly be an aspect of that. Yeah. What classes do you teach? So I teach contract law to first year students mm -hmm. and I teach comparative contract law to LLM students. Okay. In your contract law class, do you talk about theory at all? Absolutely. 
knowing the rules is a small aspect, I think, being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And in whatever guise is, uh, uh, we, we want to define a lawyer. The key to education in law, to me at least, is understanding the systems that create law. And I don't mean here systems as in the state who creates law. What I mean is the theories behind law that dictate how we think. And to be able to critically engage with law, we need these theories. We need to understand the theoretical background behind law. And we're going to jump into values here as well, is we have so many values that we think are simply universal, that we don't even understand or know that we hold. And it is only through comparison, even in conversation, that we understand that maybe these values aren't quite so universal, and that we then need to start re-evaluating whether the law is just catering to those values, Mm -hmm. or whether there's... And, and then whether we need to change that. Is that balance of value really correct? Yeah. That, that balance that we have of the values that we hold as individuals doesn't need to be correct, is, is unlikely to be correct in, mm-hmm. in any jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and I think the key there is then to start comparing. And that's where the comparative contract law comes in. And the comparison doesn't need to be across jurisdictions. It can be across uh, subjects. It can be across time. But to do that, we need to be very careful in how we do that. And values play, play the part in that. And accepting vulnerability theory would then feed into a value system. The law degree is popular because it teaches a certain way of thinking, right. um, a certain way of analysing problems. Um, and that is far more important than knowledge of the law. Because we know that law changes so quickly, and ultimately you will end up in a specialism. So understanding the way the system thinks and the way we as lawyers analyse problems is far, far more important than the rules themselves. And that then becomes quite popular. So a lot of our students go into um, banking, for example, Mm -hmm. but also go into NGOs and and into policy um, because of that critical thinking mm-hmm. uh, that they have yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's fantastic uh, I yeah. think I find it very difficult to teach the pure practice of law mm-hmm. as a vocation I think that was also the aspect where I found that I don't think I want to be a solicitor and I think the mm-hmm. academic work is far more interesting but yeah. I, I don't think I can say that too loud uh, <laughs> we'll edit that out <laughs> we'll get rid of that <laughs> I, I'm quite happy for that to be in there. I, I stand by that. Um, I'll just say it very quietly. Yeah, I'll just say it very, very, very quietly. So what projects are you working on right now? What research are you doing currently? So these all intersect, I think, um, uh-huh. uh, across the board. I'm, I'm finishing, although I've been saying I've been finishing this uh, monograph on the underlying values of German and English contract law, mm-hmm. which sets out uh, a methodology in theory which is based on the idea that most systems will have the same values. Now that seems to be an odd statement to make because of course we get different outcomes in different jurisdictions. Now I am coming at this from a contract law point of view, Mm -hmm. but I argue that most systems will have the same values. What is fundamentally different is that the values are balanced differently. And so as a comparative tool, there's not much use in comparing the values themselves because they will exist in in both systems. 
What is far more important is that we then interrogate the balance of those values relative to each other. And so that sets up a, a certain methodology that we then need to use. The questions change if we're not asking what are the values, but what are the what is the balance of the values to each other. Mm -hmm. And what we then also need to get rid of is this idea that we've just got two values that compete. Um, right? and, and I'll use a very simplistic, these aren't really values, but I'll use a very simplistic idea, the value of certainty and the value of fairness. Mm -hmm. Both are rejected as values in the book, but I'm not going to use them as, as an example. Here we've got just two values that are apparently competing and then one wins over the other. That can't work because when we compare that to another system, the, the same values will then be in conflict and one would then win over the other. Well, that, that can't be right if the only difference is so small between the two. Um, and so we then have to start to think broader, and what we find is there's a multitude of values that are all on somewhat of a plate, mm -hmm. and that plate needs to remain in balance. And to keep that in balance, we're going to shift the values relative to each other. And the same happens in another jurisdiction. And if we, if we then look at the two, we can then begin to explain why two systems with almost identical values will come to different decisions mm -hmm. on basically the same problem. Mm -hmm. That, of course, to me is fascinating in, yeah. in and of itself. But then I try and go to prove that by working through various areas of contract law in each of the jurisdictions and to then show how that, how that balance of values sits. And out of that comes in a body of research which intersects more strongly with vulnerability theory, and that is looking at essential service contracts. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at energy, broadband, uh, water, and trying to understand how these contracts work, what we see is that they're somehow regulated by consumer law, contract law, and then political regulation. And so a colleague of mine and I, Professor Sontier, have started to analyse these contracts and then decide that really they're exhibiting certain features which we don't see in mainstream contract law, which is that really they're relational in nature. They're relational in nature for one, and the second aspect is that they misunderstand vulnerability. And if we try and fix both of those, we notice that consumer law can't really deal with these contracts. Regulation can't really deal with these contracts because they're trying to be regulators and purely make the market work. So the reason is wrong there. Um, and that really we need to move back to a generalist contract law, but which integrates an idea of vulnerability theory. Mm. And if we do that, then we see that the contract is, is different mm -hmm. and that the contract contains certain obligations um, which we're not seeing at the moment, which we need to begin to see. So those, I think, would probably be the two main streams of, of my research. And mm -hmm. there's a clear connection between the two, yeah, of course. Yeah. Is your colleague a sociologist? Or also, also a lawyer. Also, also a lawyer. Um, Do you look at other sociological factors as well when, when you're doing this comparative research? Um, so that's been one of my bugbears with 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 comparative law. Is mm -hmm. that so often we stop at the point of culture. Right? So, oh well, that's a cultural difference done, mm -hmm. and and so the research was will stop without a defining culture, mm -hmm. and b actually interrogating 
what lies below that. Yeah. And what lies below culture is are the underlying values. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, to me, that is an aspect that really needs interrogation. Mm -hmm. I'm not a sociologist, um, but what I see is is that what previously we might have defined as, as a culture translates into contract law values. Mm -hmm. And those values are quite clear, yeah. but they don't become clear until we compare. Mm, I see. And it's the comparison yeah. that makes them clear. Right. Uh, so, and I, I suppose that the, the idea of, of stories, folklores, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, has the same aspect. Yes, we wouldn't notice yeah. that underlying them are all sorts of, of, of values that the story mm -hmm. is trying to tell, but we might not yeah. see them until we start comparing the same story delivered in a different jurisdiction, or different right. country, or different, I mean, it doesn't need to be that. Mm -hmm. Different time would also be a, a great comparator. I don't even know how to separate values from culture. Is it possible? I suppose once culture begins to enter law, we need to define it. Mm -hmm. And that definition becomes a value right. through the definition. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree, it's incredibly difficult. A colleague of mine provided feedback on one of the chapters, said how demoralising basically was that I ended the chapter based basically saying, well not basically saying, I did say, this book is going to be out of date before I've even put the pen down. And the difficulty there is that we're constantly identifying other values that influence our system, yeah. uh, that influence our thinking. Those with these values change as well. Who is in the Supreme Court, who the legislature is. Mm -hmm. The characters that bring in the values change. And so the book is basically out of date, apart from the theory itself, mm -hmm. the book is out, the content of the book is out of date before I've put the pen down, even for that chapter. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, in, in a certain way, that's, that's demoralising and a bit. You, you might start questioning why you're doing that or why I'm doing that, but also it provides that input for the next wave of research. Right. It's, it's the next step. The yeah. updating of the values, the identification of the values, that, that mm -hmm. continues. And I think that makes the project so, so interesting. Yeah. Because it, it, it can't stop. Right. And the same applies to vulnerability theory. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's, it's the same background knowledge that what we consider to be resilience assets, for example. That definition will never change. We, we, uh, we'll always change. We're always going to be looking for these. And we're always going to be looking to apply vulnerability theory. So yeah. to me, the parallel there is, is striking. So we talked about this a little bit, about the practical implications of your research. Is there anything that you'd like to say specifically about that? Like what about what the practical implications of your research are or what you'd like that to be? I think currently the, the ideas are still quite abstract. I would like to see, particularly in relation to vulnerability theory, those those that have active voices within the space, so the regulators and also the charities, to be adopting a vulnerability theory-based framework to understanding the contracts and the contract law, and therefore the framework within which essential services operate. To me, that would fundamentally change the landscape. Mm -hmm. We would stop thinking in categories and we would stop thinking about immediate 
I'm going to call it problem solving. Mm -hmm. um, and we would think more in terms of the resilience assets that come through the systems that we create and, and how each of these systems fit within the grander narrative of the jurisdiction, maybe even beyond that. In terms of the work on values, I think we're seeing it slowly that as a, a methodology, as a theory, it can be helpful in comparing. And it would be nice to see much more in comparative contract law. I'm not sure it necessarily translates beyond that, but as far mm -hmm. as it does, that, of course that would be great as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think those would be the areas in which I'd really like to see change and where I'd like to see practical implications of, of my work, I think. Yeah particularly in the essential services market, it, it could really change how we approach and how we protect so many people who are affected by a system that doesn't work. When, when you talk about values underlying contract law, do you think that the same applies to other areas of law as well? Absolutely, and I think other areas are probably far ahead if we look at public law, constitutional law. Yeah. The acceptance of values is is simply there. Right. I don't think we see that in, in the contract law realm. There, mm -hmm. there's, there's a really strict narrative that traditional contract law has nothing to do with values, mm -hmm. um, that it is purely based on rational, equal individuals who negotiate every single term of mm -hmm. their contract. And, and, and that is where the discussion ends. And that is simply not true. Right. We talk about um, it like it's math. Yeah, exactly. Right. But um, it's not math. But, but it isn't. And, and, and as soon as we accept that there's values, and if we accept that the values, and we can start thinking about it from also a vulnerability theory perspective yeah. of those operating within the systems and even the system itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, I think that's that has a long way to go, whereas other areas at least accept it. In contract law, we will see acceptance of ideologies or maybe even philosophies that yeah. underlie the law, possibly norms, mm -hmm. but I have to be very clear, they're not values. Mm -hmm. They can be a category in which we can find values, but they are not values. Right. And I think that's where contract law has such a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Have you found that your colleagues are open to hearing what you have to say and the lawmakers are, are open to your research? I think I've seen a change over time, but I've also seen a change over time in myself and mm -hmm. how I have understood various aspects of what I talk about. Mm -hmm. So as I have become clearer in what the theory and, and methodology are and as I've become clearer in how vulnerability theory could work, acceptance has also grown. Mm -hmm. I think you will always have those in various fields which will simply not accept a change of perspective. And that's healthy, that's great. Those, those are the people that I can bounce this off. Um, and if you can then agree to disagree, that's, that's probably a win. Or at least where you can get others to recognise that there may be another aspect within there, that has to be a win and that has to be progress. If we're truly going to present something new, I, I think we have to accept that there's going to be pushback. Change okay. is always going to be difficult yeah. um, in, in all fields. 
I've certainly seen a shift, but I've seen that shift in myself as much as those that surround me. Mm-hmm. I think there's a large group of people, of colleagues, that have embraced this thinking or have through their own work been quite close to that anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's been fairly easy to persuade, yeah. to persuade those. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably where I, I'd say I am. We're almost to the end of our time. Mm-hmm. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? What takeaways would you like to share? I think the first one is that it's, it's awfully easy, I think, to believe that we understand vulnerability theory, but I'm always, always learning more, and particularly from engaging with other fields, and that there is so much that we haven't yet unearthed, particularly in fields that aren't obviously and immediately impacted. So contract law being being one of those for me. And the second is that the search for values is is definitely going to go on forever and ever. Or let's hope so. If if it doesn't then we're making no progress as a society and in the legal field. Those would probably be my takeaways that I can think of on the spot. I'm pro- I'm probably going to have much better insights on that in as I wake up tonight and think yeah. I could have answered that question so much better. But I think those from for now those would probably be my takeaways from from my work over the last few years. Well, thank you so much for sitting with me today and sharing about your work. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. And also, thank you so much to Emily for having me. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning, but Dr. Dodsworth is a visiting scholar, visiting Emory Law as a guest of the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative at Emory during summer 2023. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative or on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. See you next time.